Yeah. The Bar Podcast. Uh, Biblical uh, Reform, let's uh, go. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the bar. Come on and pull up a seat. And open up your Bible. What a wonderful feast. The living bread. And we're discussing what it means for the streets, the inner cities, and the burbs, and every person we meet. That's where we challenge worldviews that we hear from world news. In light of the scripture, yo, we are here to serve you. We're your source for resources to help you on your way as you battle mean forces. Yo, this is for the people who can see the importance of sound theology and the scripture that support it. Yeah, this is for the truth lovers, biblically reforming, preaching Christ to the nations. Yeah. The nations. Welcome to the modern reformation. Yeah. Welcome everybody to the bar. It's your guest host, David Knight from Exposit the Word, standing in for Dwayne. Different host, same show, same top, top guests. So let's get to it because I am super excited to be coming through your speakers, your earbuds, wherever you're listening to the bar. And we are grateful that you are listening and we love to start the show off by thanking you, the listeners, for tuning in and supporting the show. And just like we do every Tuesday, we bring you another awesome guest. We are delighted to be joined by Pastor Seymour Heliger. Welcome to the Bar Podcast, Seymour. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Seymour, it's so good to be able to catch up with you today. And just in case anyone listening didn't watch that interview with you from the fallen state that went viral, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Well, I am a sinner saved only by the grace of God, and um, I am married to Valencia, 27 years of of marriage and God's goodness to us, Uh, three children, uh, one grandson, and another one on the way. Uh, Actually, could be be due any minute now. I've been pastoring Grace Community Church for almost 10 years now, and uh, in the city of long beach california so that's a, a brief summary i've seen photos on the internet of where you're pastoring there, there are certainly worse places to be be, be a pastor right Simon? <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's always you know um it, i guess it, it can seem you're in the worst position possible uh, long beach is a very challenging area it's it's really a mission field uh the, the churches are relatively nominal and with the recent uh, surgence of the social justice movement in you know, the churches, it, it's really become a, a fault line, as Woody Bauckham's book also aptly uh, describes it. So it's the, the, the necessity of sound biblical preaching is important, but but also comes with a, a Second Timothy chapter four says a, a lack of a desire for it, the endurance for it. So it's a mission field. But I'm grateful to the Lord that he's kept us faithful to preaching the gospel. We, we still see fruit of salvation and sanctification. And uh, we, we see um, people who are pierced with conviction and those who are pierced with bitter anger is what happened in Acts. But that's that's mm-hmm. the fruit of preaching the truth. So God is still right. at work in Long Beach and other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, take us back to the beginning. How did you become a Christian? Yes, I, I appreciate the question and I love it because it gives me a chance to reflect on God's goodness. And... My father was a church planter, and uh, he was uh, planting churches in an island called Nevis. And Nevis was actually a, a British island for quite some time. And so it was called the, the British West Indies. And so I was there because of my dad and just heard him preaching. I was always fond of his preaching, 
He was a, a very magnetic personality. I uh, had good charisma, but had a sense of, of pulpit etiquette and and uh, charisma. But in all of that, in the mercy of God, I knew I was a sinner. Hmm. And it was through his preaching of, of sin. And uh, he was in an area where um, there was a, a lot of immorality. Uh, there was a, a lack of a focus, a lack of parental guidance, just a, an island that was corrupt and some of the religions of that time became more stagnant and, and not evangelistic. And so he was evangelistic in his preaching. Uh, while I was preaching repentance. And, and so I, I knew I was a sinner around the age of five. And the beauty of God's goodness and his providence, he opened my eyes to see that in my interaction with my mother, especially with her. Uh, my dad would travel to preach. And when he traveled, I'll give him a goodbye hug and a kiss and tell him I love him. And, and then the raging five-year-old Seymour will kick in. It wasn't the terrible twos, any of those, uh, you know, titles that they give kids. It was just depravity. Mine came early, others it comes late. So mine was exposed early. Age of five, I, I recognized that something was wrong. I just didn't know what to do about it. I also was aware of, uh, you know, the songs that they would sing because it was a bit of a Pentecostal atmosphere. It was more charismatic when we moved to the States. And so they will say, hey, we're going to have a grand time up in heaven. I'm like, I'm glad you are, but I'm not going. Uh, I knew I was not fit for heaven uh, because I was a, a sinner. It was not until we uh, migrated to the States in Florida. It was about 1979, 1980. So it was, a, it was a long time ago. I was about eight years old. And after devotion, my sister, who's younger than me, I walked up to my father and said, Dad, I, I want to be saved. And um, I felt that that question was for me because I, I didn't know what the next step was. At least it didn't appeal to me, but that night it appealed to me. And so she asked my dad the question and my dad says, oh, I, sure, I'll tell you what, what you can do. And, and so he gave us, I think, a summary of the gospel in my vague memory. And then he led us through, uh, as he would, kind of the Armenian process of the sinner's prayer. That didn't do anything for me. I, I didn't sense sense forgiveness. I didn't sense I had hope. I still felt justice without God during that prayer. But when my father told us all to cry out to God for salvation, ah, uh, man, that that moment um, was the memorable moment when I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I cried out to God to save me, a young boy not wanting to live without Christ, not wanting to live a hopeless life, um, a shallow life, a life of spiritual death and alienation from God, a life where, where sin is not conquered, but sin subdues us. That's not the life I wanted. So I cried out to God that night. And I do believe it was that night that was a def a defining moment um, of, of my regeneration, my new birth, uh, where the Lord gave me a love for him, a love for the truth, a love for the church, uh, love for the fellowship, love for the brethren. You know, I was eight years old and I loved everything about the church. I didn't have that love yeah. before. And so there yeah. were visible signs, I think, that I want to give God a thanks for, even though there was a, a Pentecostal bent in some of the things. Uh, regeneration is the same for all. Uh, it is when God gives life to those who were once dead. It grants them the gift of faith to believe and turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the old is gone, behold, the new has come in Christ Jesus. And so that, I believe that moment was a defining moment for me. Uh, where God brought me from from death 
to life, from darkness uh, to light. Yeah, so good. So good to hear that. You mentioned that you were raised in, in a charismatic environment. What was your first contact with Reformed theology and how did the Lord begin to lead you in that direction? Yes, brother. It was about a 12-year process, I starting around age 26. But before that, I always had questions. But, um, you know, in the Pentecostal background, the classic text was, touch not mine anointed. Well, I still touch God's anointed, quote unquote. So I would ask questions. I, I would probe my dad. He didn't like most of my questions because some of them were a bit personal. But I needed to know for myself, why do we do the things we do? And there was just a, always a, a level of dissatisfaction with the answer because it wasn't rooted in the scripture. Uh, it, it was almost as if, you know, we, we bake the, the meatloaf in the oven and we cut it in half. Uh, 75 years ago, the oven wasn't large enough, but the oven's big enough, but we still cut it in half. We just do it this way. It's our tradition. And I needed a little bit more than that. I needed some substance so that I can kind of hang my thoughts and my convictions on. And, and so I think that began that inquisitiveness, that, that desire to excel, to, to want to grow. Uh, also, I was a musician. I was a bassist. And I, I just felt stagnant because there was no structure to our worship. It, it, it wasn't, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, 14, let everything done, be done decently and in order. That That's just not what we saw. So all of those things plagued me uh, a bit. It, it didn't seem to fit with the biblical uh, precedence. So I think it just led to just that 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 hunger and desire for more. And so at the age of 26, uh, you know, I told my father, hey, look, Dad, I love you and appreciate everything. But there were certain events that, that took place so that led up to it that we just were not, I think, sufficiently faithful to the scripture. And I wanted to know what that looked like. I, I knew that something was not quite there. And it's, you know, my dad did the best he could. And uh, I love him. And he's, he's with the Lord now, I believe. Uh, but I, I needed some clarity on some things. And uh, so as a musician, it allowed me the opportunity to, to play uh, for other churches and to network with other uh, affiliate churches in, in the city, in the county that I was in, that was uh, Florida, uh, in, in Orange County. And so I, I played for a church just outside the city of Orlando, Florida, and I was there for a bit and, you know, the pastor was great, but something still wasn't right. Um, he, he was quasi charismatic word of faith. And he and I would ask, you know, would have uh, conversations and dinners and meet. And I'll ask him questions about, you know, his belief. Um, he, he did embrace one uh, doctrine that I thought was important. And that is the security of, of, of believers. And he preached that believers can lose their salvation one Sunday, the next week, he changed his mind. Uh, so I thought, well, that's commendable, but some of and some of the other, you know, issues, he just wouldn't budge. And uh, so it was like, okay, this is not it. And so somehow we, we ended up, my wife and I ended up uh, at a church that his name is Joel Hunter that he pastored. Now, Joel Hunter, he, he knows reformed doctrine, but he got caught up into the social um, activist movement back in the 60s. So I think some of his, his um, convictions changed, but we went there and it was different. And he was like, okay, this, this is nice. This is pretty nice. Uh, this is different. What stood out though wasn't the preaching because his preaching was more works kind of, let's do this, let's be missional, let's be better people. Actually, what was more theologically sound was his music director and the songs they sang. The, the songs they sang were theologically rich. A lot of the, the old 
hymns and some of the newer hymns, but the music director would, would always, uh, he would actually take the time to explain the meaning behind the songs. And, and that was encouraging. It's like, okay, now the theology is starting to click. It's starting to make sense. Uh, God is filling the dots slowly. Now, fast forward a couple of years, I got to transfer my job from Bell South and I transferred to Atlanta, Georgia, because that's where I wanted to, to live. Um, for quite some time. And so the door opened up for us to move there. And the the first church I attended was a church of the apostles. Um, that was pastored by, that is pastored by Michael Youssef. Uh, so we attended there and, you know, the sermons were, a lot of it were thematic, but, but still biblical. But the class that really stood out was the, uh, the, uh, the, the Sunday school that was led by a man named Stan Cardner. Now Stan Cardner, I didn't know at that time, uh, was a, a TMS grad. And I think he had passed a church in Idaho and his wife had passed. So he stepped away and relocated and became a staff member at, at Church of the Apostles. His teaching was amazing. It's like, okay, this, this is like different. It was, a, it, it was filling a, a, a void that I had for so long. It's like, it, it started clicking, started making sense. Um, so as you can see, brother, it was a process of 12 years. So now we, we moved um, too far from his church and we ended up in another church that someone recommended. And I was the basis for that church, but they were charismatic Pentecostal. I confronted the elders and the pastors and it just, uh, it, we were at an impasse um, uh, with this particular pastor, uh, Jensen Franklin. And uh, I was concerned about some of the things that he was doing and um, how I thought he was being more of a uh, manipulative kind of controlling uh, the, 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 the leaders. They were on his footstool. They were afraid to stand up and speak the truth. Uh, so I, I was very concerned about that and some of the things that they were doing, but seeing that they were already set in their ways, the Lord transitioned us out of there. And so it was about 2006. So from 96 to 2006, that's a 10 year process of God progressively bringing me to the place where I finally had that personal reformation moment in 2008. In 2008, I was teaching weekly. We're considering doing a church plant. And so I was teaching weekly. And it was that it was in that moment. And I started doing Colossians. And then I went to Romans um, that uh, the Spirit of God uh, through the scriptures really brought to light the doctrines of grace. Um, and that's when I had my personal reformation. And that's when it started really making sense. And so it, it took some time. But I know God is faithful because I think if it happened gradually, instantaneously, it may have been devastating for me because yeah. once I came to that point, it took about a month or two. I was brother. I was so silent. Uh, I, I was, I was still talking lovingly to my wife, but I was talking a lot less. She knew something was going on. I was wrestling with these truths because now it was a matter of my conversion. Was I truly saved then? Yeah. And uh, so in the providence of God, men like Paul Washer, I came to my attention and never heard of this guy um, un until that moment. But then he really began to ask some, some, some search, heart searching, soul searching questions about my own soul. Do I know the Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, he didn't mince his words. And I appreciate that because the last thing I need is to have a, a counterfeit conversion and I take it up to the Lord Jesus Christ and it doesn't cash out. Um, I, I need something that is soul changing, something that's transforming. That only comes through believing alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the questions he asked. And that was very helpful for me. Now, added to that, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones also, I was reading some of his excerpts about justification. That was helpful because I was preaching through Romans. And that was also encouraging for me too. And that's the first time I've heard of him. He's been one of my uh, favorite preachers uh, since then, since that time. Now, 
another uh, pastor is uh, Dr. John MacArthur. I used to listen to John MacArthur when I was 11 years old, 12 years old. I was going through some struggles uh, in my own flesh, lust, and all those sinful desires a young person will go through. And, you know, the Pentecostal churches and the charismatic churches, they would try to cast a demon out. And I'm like, this is not a demon. Right. I, I have a desire yeah. for a woman. It's just misplaced and sinfully so. Yeah. I-, I need help in mortifying that part of the sin, but also designed to be married in a godly way. Uh, well, th- that didn't happen, but there was. I listened to John MacArthur for a period of time, and it was just some things that he was saying that, that was so helpful for me. I don't know exactly what he said, but I, what I do remember is that there was always, this is what the Scripture says about it. So when the Lord opened up my eyes to the doctrines of grace, I, I finally realized that well, Dr. MacArthur made so much sense. It's because he was biblical. So I went back to his sermons and began reading his sermons again. And, and it's like, oh, this this was not just different. This was really good. And it was yeah. encouraging for my soul. So it was a 12-year process, brother, where God brought me from that period of 1996 to 2008. But 2008, is, I think, is when I had that, that great divine aha moment, yeah. that personal yeah. reformation by the grace of God. Yeah. We're going to talk about John MacArthur in a few moments, but before we talk about your call into ministry, I just briefly want to touch on your interview on the fallen state. I watched it for the first time last night. There were so many amusing questions, and I thought you did a really good job under some really serious pressure, right? How did that whole thing come about, Seymour? Yeah. Well, my wife is part of the social media uh, ministry at the church, and she's always been involved in that. Since I started pastoring, she really spearheaded the website. She thought it was always good uh, that because we don't have a building in the steeple, the website can serve as kind of that um, that gap. So yeah. she posted a portion of my introductory sermon in, in Ephesians. I was back in 2019 when I started preaching that September. So there was a clip from that introductory sermon that she posted, and it got quite a few views. It received quite a few views, and and so the executive producer for the Fallen State saw it. Then he saw another video that I made about the racial tensions um, after the George, George Floyd uh, situation came about. And he appreciated my perspective. And he was like, hey, I saw those two clips. I'd love to have you uh, join us. And that's really how it came. It's just the faithful preaching of the word of God, posting something that may be countercultural, but still timeless. Um, that They appreciated the content and invited me to, to join uh, Jesse Lee Peterson. Yeah. And, and what was your experience like, Seymour? Well, it was quite interesting. I, I didn't I didn't know Jesse Lee Peterson too well. Um, I did watch a documentary called Uncle Tom, at least the first one, a portion of it. I didn't watch the whole thing, but a portion of it. And he was on there. That was like my first introduction to him. And then I, I tried to watch uh, some interviews, but I didn't have time because they asked me to do do this interview a week. Uh, ahead. So I didn't have time. I want to shepherd the congregation. So I didn't change my schedule as far as sermon preparation and all the other things, you know, counseling, phone calls. I left the schedule the same. And so what was left over, I would devote to watching those videos. And I didn't have maybe 30 minutes. And the videos I watched, maybe two of them, um, something like that. All of those, those two videos that I watched, the people walked off the stage. So I didn't get the full breadth of what he had to say because he offended them with his questions. And uh, it seems like he got, he receives more views when you walk off the stage. So I didn't really have a, a good, you know, understanding of his philosophy and um, uh, his his condition, as I would see as a, a, a nice man in one sense, but depraved in another. Um, I didn't really get a, a chance to to examine the full scope of, of uh, his his beliefs. So I, I really just went there, trusting the Lord and depending on the Lord to to help me. Um, 
speak well, to speak uh, with the spirits of grace and self-control so that I glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And at every avenue, I make the scriptures clear and known and then declare the gospel as the opportunities available. So. Yeah, yeah. We did a really great job with that. It's really encouraging. I don't know if you've had the chance to read some of the comments on that video, but I think you certainly come across really well and, and the Lord was with you in that. We're going to make sure that the link to that video is in the description below, so make sure that you check that out. It's, it's well worth watching. So when did you first feel the call into ministry, Ben Seymour? Yeah, it was. I was really young. It was just a little bit after my conversion. So maybe the age of nine or 10, my dad would do like um, outreach and they'd go out to the open and declare the gospel. And I was just like, I, I, I want to be a preacher. I love preaching. But I always saw myself as bivocational, never really as a full-time um, pastor, but I, I wanted to preach the word of God. It just, I think that's when the burning really began. So it's probably around the age of nine. And uh, it was around that same time I would actually have like services with my siblings. And so I'll gather them in a room and um, I'll even record the sermons because my dad recorded it. I fig figured you can't be a pastor if you don't record your sermons. Yeah. So I would take his cassettes and, and I think a couple of times I actually raised his sermons because I used his cassettes. But he was gracious. We'd actually record uh, our services in, in the bedroom and I'll be up there preaching. I mean, probably a bunch, a bunch of nonsense. But still, I felt like I was like, I, you got you got to preach. You, you just got to preach. And so I felt that urge to preach. And so I was doing it from probably like nine or 10 years old in front of my siblings. That's so good. Do those recordings exist today, Seymour? By the grace of God, no. They've been burned in an holy inferno. <laughs> I don't think they're around. <laughs> but then, you know, I might ask one of my siblings, they're like, oh, we still, we still have it. Uh, but they still remember key moments in it. Some of it was humorous. Uh, right. But they still remembered us having those uh, services. So my siblings will bring those things to my attention. And so yeah. when when uh, they came to the first sermon I preached in Ephesians, they came because my son got married that Saturday before the Sunday Lord's Day service. So most all of my siblings were there and they were like, well, it's not a surprise to us that Seymour was preaching. He was preaching to us when we when we were five or six years old anyway, forcing us to have church and, and you know, and, and forcing us yes. to be, be Christians. So they're like, it's not a surprise that he's doing it. They always had an idea that is a longing that God put on my heart. Uh, that's so good. What do you think you would have be, uh, done for a living if you if you hadn't become a pastor, Seymour? I would, I would have been a pilot. Yeah, I wanted to be a pilot from, from the age of four or five. Um, I actually pursued that in my adulthood to some extent. I, I became, I, I applied solo for a little bit, but I didn't get my license. But I've always uh, enjoyed aviation, so I would have been a pilot. Well, if you switch things up and become a prosperity uh, preacher, you could still you could still do that, Seymour, right? <laughs> yeah, but someone flies it for me. That's no fun. <laughs> I want to fly it myself. That That's the whole yeah. objective, you know, is to, to fly it. But um yeah, let's not go down that trail of prosperity preachers. I've, I've had my run-ins with a few of them, so. <laughs> so with regards to training um, for the ministry, you trained under John MacArthur at the Master's Seminary, didn't you? How did that opportunity open up, and how did you guys manage having already been married with young children at the time? Yeah, so when the burden for ministry really hit, 2009, and, you know, I'm driving down, I remember it, I'm driving down Highway 15, 
Um, Buford Boulevard, or Buford Road in Cumming, Georgia is just vivid. And I'm sitting in the car. My wife is with me. I said, hey, honey, I, I would have sensed the call of God to ministry. And, you know, my wife is a loving woman, but she's a true sister. You know, one of those, as I said, the urban sisters. And she said, uh, 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 no, 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 honey. And uh, so she she just wasn't enough for that. And I waited, trust the Lord and, and prayed uh, about it. And then I mentioned to her the Master's Seminary or, you know, Southern um, Baptist Theological Seminary is an option because it's closer and I could take a job transfer and we, we don't necessarily lose um, the, the sense of the living that we had, the lifestyle. But the Lord worked in her heart. And one day I'm at work and um, she she reaches out to me. She says, hey, we, I, I think I think I'm ready. We need to do this. Somehow she was motivated. And I didn't feel I didn't complete the application. I started it. I didn't complete it. And when she got that fire, she didn't think I was moving fast enough. And uh, so she she actually sent the application for me because she was ready. One of the things that she read on the website was the opportunity for women to be mentored through the seminary of Sam Wives uh, discipleship ministry. And that really appealed to her because she wanted to grow spiritually. Also, she wanted to be prepared. How do I serve my husband who's going to uh, shepherd God's people as, as an under shepherd? And uh, so yeah. that uh, is how it developed. Uh, we signed up for it and uh, were accepted in 2010. Now, the, the family dynamics and the family situation, yeah, that, that was a, a layer of complexity to it. It made it challenging. But I was convinced that pursuing this is eternal. And that is what my kids need most of all anyway. And so the, the temporary loss is an eternal gain. The material loss leads to an eternal gain. So doing the equation, uh, the, the eternal weight of glory was much greater than light affliction of the seminary. And it was difficult financially. Uh, there were some hardships there. But the, the people of God uh, from the seminary, Dr. Herb Busnitz, um, Ray Maringer, who was there, and even Dr. MacArthur. Um, not many people know about this, but it's worth saying. And the reason why I would say this, there have been uh, several people slandering Dr. MacArthur and even others uh, using racial lines of uh, prejudice at Grace and prejudice uh, at the Masters University. So I need to share my perspective so, so there's a, a balanced understanding that this is, this is not true. Um, one Sunday evening after service, Dr. Irv Busnitz kindly walks up to my family, greets them and makes sure he, he gets all the names. Of course, he, he never got my wife's name correctly. So she just adopted that name from him, said, OK, that's that's my name. So we leave it at that. I have another name. Uh, but he says, hey, have you guys met Dr. McCarthy? We're like, no, we haven't met him yet. So well, let me introduce um, you guys to him. And so we all walked up there, all five of us, and and we introduced ourselves and um, my, my youngest daughter she hides behind us because she was afraid of MacArthur. She thought he was tall, but he wasn't. He wasn't tall. He was just a godly man. I think it was a fear of God. But anyway, um, he, he shook my hand. And he says, now, Seymour, it's such a pleasure to meet you, but make me one promise. And I know MacArthur doesn't want me to share this. He's not endorsing these things. But if people are saying what they want to say about him, I'm going to say what is the truth and what I know. So he says, Seymour, I want you to make me a promise. I said, okay, I'll do my best. But do you promise? that if you need anything, anything at all, that you will reach out to me. And he points himself to me. He says, not Irv, not anyone else, 
would you get in touch with me if you need anything? Wow. I was like, um, okay. Yes, I will. It was kind of surprising. It's like, so we walked away and, and Herb Business was like, well, Dr. MacArthur, he's done this before, but he doesn't do it often. But when he does it, he means it. So Seymour, if you need anything, reach out to him. Wow. So we, we reached a bit of a, a pickle in life and it was a challenge for us. And so I, I went to the seminary and was like, okay, what can I do? Can I work? How, what can I do? Scholarship, what's available? You know, I want to make sure that I care for my family. I don't want us to be in a difficult situation before I let you guys know we're about to reach that point. And uh, so Ray talked to me about the importance of humility is the one thing he said, because he addressed uh, that might be an issue in my own heart of pride. Uh, but then he actually took that need to Herb business and Herb was like, yeah, I recall though, Dr. MacArthur telling Seymour what he needs to do if he uh, needs any help. And it was anything and nothing's off limits, including this. And so I, I did reach out uh, to him through a secretary and it eventually got to him. And uh, on more than one occasion, um, Dr. John MacArthur, who has a massive following, everyone behind him took, took personal care and attention to me and my family uh, to make sure that we were uh, taken care of. So wow. when, when, when we hear of the other stories, we have to balance it out with, with, um, with I think, uh, objective facts of things and events that has happened. And he's been a blessing to me. He knows who I am. I've written to him and corresponded, and he's uh, responded back in writings. He's invited me to pastoral uh, dinners uh, before with his pastoral staff, always kind. And, and so when I walk up to him after I haven't seen him in a year or two, he says, hey, Dr. MacArthur, I'm Seymour. He says, yeah, I know you, Seymour. It's good to see you again. <laughs> Just always been cordial, very loving, very supportive. Um, one of the kindest men in that position that I know. Yeah. And that's key yeah. to remember. He's, he's in a very lofty position. He's, 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 he's almost like the John Calvin of our, of, of our era. It's because God has sovereignly given this, him this position. He's not a perfect man. Uh, he's a man who still sins against God and he still sins against others. And I'm sure he has as well. Um, but he's an, he's an upright man, a, a godly man and a man who's uh, shown a genuine care for people. And he definitely uh, has done that for us. And from time to time, I would hear others say, yeah, he's asking about your ministry and how the Lord is using you in Long Beach. So um, I have nothing but fond thoughts of, of uh, Dr. MacArthur. And so I, I want to make sure I express that yeah. Yeah. in light of all the sinful folly that, ten, uh, that tends to go on. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. It's really encouraging. I've got two follow-up questions, Seymour. We're going to go off track here a little bit. First of all, what's Valencia's other name? <laughs> uh, I think it's Venetia. I think it's something like Venetia. It's it's a V, and he's, he comes close, and we're like, "Well, honey, just just give it to him." <laughs> he seems funny. to like that name better. <laughs> and, and second of all, you, you did touch on this, but I just wanted to make sure that we 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 uh, we clear about this. So I, I remember you saying before when we spoke last time, you 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 were also working one and a half jobs as well during this time, wasn't you? If I remember right, so you've got these young kids, and and you were working at the same time. Am I right about that? Yes. So. Three months after I attended the seminary, I got a full-time job uh, doing security at the college. And then in the summer, Dr. Shannon offered me a position at the church because I wanted to serve in some way, but it had to be compatible with my work schedule, seminary and family. So I, I accepted the job as uh, the church's undertaker. I was a funeral coordinator uh, for Grace. Um, so I did that. And then in July of that year, so April full-time job, June part-time job. And then in July, I took another part-time job. 
as an apartment manager um, in Van Nuys, which wasn't the best area. But so you, you can say I, I had the equivalence of, of, of two jobs, uh, a full time job and two part time jobs. Yeah, well, Plus full time yeah. in the seminary and, and family, so yes, it, yeah. it was quite uh, busy. And then we we planned prayerfully to make this a three year track and not a, a seven year track. So with all that, it was there was a, a lot of stress and a strain on the body and the mind. Yeah, of course. When you look back at your time there now, what were some of your the the highlights and what were your favorite classes, Seymour? Well, I think the the first class I took. That really just, man, I, I was like on cloud 99. Um, that I would say just really encouraged me. And they all did, but this one was different. It was, it was, uh, it was a hermeneutics class by Dr. Harris. But what was special about that, that hermeneutics class was not necessarily what he taught as much, although that was helpful. It was just, I wasn't quite ready for some of the content. I didn't really develop a strong hermeneutical uh, understanding until Dr. Barrett started grading my papers. And uh, if you ever had seen Dr. Barrick's grading, it's, there's a lot of blood. And it's like, you know, he just he just took a, a bottle of, of red ink and just pours it on your paper because everything is wrong. Uh, right. But what stood out with, with uh, Dr. Harris is he had us um, recite and, and learn 1 Corinthians. And he says, for consider your calling my brethren, right? Not many of you are my wise and noble according to the flesh. And, and I, I would learn it, learn it. And then I started just quoting it in the house. I was just so excited. So it's like, guys, we're going to study the word of God. That was memorable. And then at the end of the semester, I heard the testimonies of the seniors. And that was necessary for me because I did not see any light at the end of this tunnel. Uh, the, with, with the seminary, the, the pressures of seminary life and, and family and, and work. When I heard those guys and heard their stories of, of suffering and their wives suffering and, and their endurance by the grace of God and suffering and, and finishing well, um, man, I just sat there and just basked in God's faithfulness. It, it built me up in my uh, trust and confidence, but it also, um, in another sense, it strengthened my resolve in the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. So I would say that that homilet, that that hermeneutics class with 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 First Corinthians one reminds me of God's calling in my life. Yeah. Um, the testimonies and hearing that reminded me of God's sovereignty in my life. Yeah. And I think those were character shaping um, events in my first semester that um, built that endurance that I needed to finish and to finish well for the glory yeah. of Christ. Yeah, yeah, so good. I know that you're very thankful for your time at seminary, but how can we as the local church do a better job equipping men for the ministry? Yes. Well, I think it, it starts with making sure that that the men that you are equipping are truly believers. It's important to give them a, a survey of all the scriptures, starting with just a sound biblical discipleship. And then... Uh, you know, a New Testament survey, Old Testament survey, walking them through those processes. There's a lot of uh, helpful videos and resources online that churches can use. Um, but but give them an understanding of the scriptures, the, the historicity of how scriptures are, have been um, compiled or how we have the canon of scriptures so that they can be confident, um, not in some type of emotional experience, but in, in the fact that in the province of God, the truth was reserved over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure you drive home the importance of, of, of the scripture being infallible and inspired God breathed. Yeah. 
just just all of the, the the core doctrines that Paul told Timothy to hold fast in First and Second Timothy, uh, we model that in the lives of the men, and then we pour into them, and then give them opportunities to teach, uh, whether it be a you know Sunday school, a youth event. Um, stop inviting guest speakers all the time, right? Uh, use the ones you've got. You know, maybe there's a, a feeling that hey, if I don't get a guest speaker, the, the the you know the members want to attend. Well, maybe the members are attending for the wrong reason. If they're tending because God's word is being preached, you don't need a, a star to replace another star. You just need a, you know, a faithful vessel. So make sure that the opportunities for them to teach um, and, and and to preach. And and uh, even if you have to go through, you know, the, the preaching lab kind of, uh, you know, uh, if you have to resemble a preaching lab event, I'm not necessarily a big fan of it, but I think it's a necessary, I don't want to say evil because it's not evil. It's a necessary part of the process of training that you have a preaching lab and you critique the preaching. That, that's fine. But just just do something to help them hone their skins, skills and then um, encourage them to, to begin to acquaint themselves with the original languages and yeah. go to a seminary that still believes the original languages are critical to um, exegetical studies. So I think doing those things will help the seminary so when they get there they they have a running start and then they don't start you know falling flat on their face like i did because i had no idea what was coming my way yeah 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 you might have already half answered this question but there's obviously a lot of people within the church who aren't going to go into uh, ministry as well so for everybody what does biblical discipleship look like yeah according to our savior's words and the command is go and as you go make disciples baptizing them, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So discipleship is shaping the character of the Christian to conform to the words of Christ. Shaping the character of the Christian to conform to the words of Christ. So that to me is this most simplistic kind of um, definition. And and it starts with just bringing the scriptures to the, the conversation. Uh, you can start with uh, a book in the Bible. I've used it various ways, like right now I'm discipling three young men, but I'm also mentoring two other men as I'm discipling these three men so they can do the same thing. So we're going through what is the gospel by Greg Gilbert so that th- those brothers who are there, that they, they understand the gospel and, and they truly realize that they've been saved by that same gospel. Yeah. Then from there, we're going through some other resources and then we're going to go, you know, full throttle into a book in the Bible as after we've laid those foundations. But of course, those uh, materials that we're using are still biblically based. So we'll be going in the scriptures, but they're not necessarily systematic. It's kind of like a thematic. Um, But once we're done with the thematic studies, they have a good foundation. It's like, you know, know, fundamentals of the faith. Once they had that foundation, then we'll go to a book like Mark. It's Mark's gospel. And then we'll work to that um, line by line in that final stage of discipleship so that they, they learn the importance of what did the savior say? And then all of scripture points to him, speaks of him. And therefore we want to teach them the importance of using all of scripture um, so that Christ may be glorified in their lives. Yeah. So good. And, and what does that practically look like? So if so, if you, you have a visitor on Sunday walking into the church, how do they kind of get into the, the, the life of the church? What, what, what does that process kind of look like at your church? Same yeah you know as time goes on ours continues to improve and we continue to make changes but we we do have them fill out the membership form and then we sit down with them and, and do the interview look over the 
membership form and ask them, you know, any issues you have with the bylaws, the churches, philosophy, ministry, our statement of faith. And uh, then I, I usually ask them to give me their testimony. Can you tell me what God has done to save you? Or I'll ask them to declare the gospel uh, in, in two to three minutes. But I need to know where they stand, where, where, where they stand concerning Christ and the gospel. So we'll ask that question. And then if, if everything uh, sounds like it's reasonable and it's faithful, based on where they are, because they may not be much, as mature believers, we'll accept it. And then they'll go through uh, the membership class and then from there, right in the fellowship. Now, let's just say, for example, some we meet with a person, we're like, yeah, we appreciate the membership form and you desire to do this because it's not an easy form to fill out. It asks some hard probing questions. But if we have any concerns, we'll say, we, we do want you to meet with a brother, to a brother, sister, to a sister, someone else for, for a few weeks, three to four weeks, talk about spiritual things, the gospel, because we want to make sure that the life you say you have is truly there. Um, so we may have them meet with someone else for a brief period of time so that there's a, a, a greater level of assurance of faith that they're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. They have not been baptized. We, we don't like to delay baptism. Um, there is a there's a book that was written by Larry E. Dyer that we have given to others about baptism. It's very small. We want to read a very small book and get a biblical understanding of baptism, but we try not to delay it. Uh, we've, we've had several people come to our church and they've been at other churches and, and I've been baptized. And so when they come to me, I'm like, well, that's a problem because it is not only symbolic, but it's a command. And, and if you've started off your walk with the Lord delaying obedience and you're living in perpetual disobedience. Yeah. So we do try to encourage baptism, and it is a it is a wonderful declaration of the gospel. It's one of those great symbols, and it's an ordinance that Christ has command. It's not an option. And so we 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 do um, encourage to be baptized, especially if they have been core believers for a while. But we also ask why why, why the delay? Do you not see this as a transgression? Um, so it depends on where the person is at. If they're a new believer and um, they want to be baptized. Recently, we've been giving them this booklet on baptism so they'll understand it. And then we'll give them a week and say, okay, a week from now, we'll schedule a time for baptism uh, because we don't want to discourage, we don't want to encourage a delayed obedience because it's still yeah. disobedience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's that book called again, Seymour? Can you remember? It is Baptism. It's actually the second edition, Baptism, The Believer's First Obedience by Larry E. Dyer. Okay. It's very helpful. It's it's a book. It's a small book, almost a booklet, like a hundred pages. Uh-huh. But I find it very useful, and it's a, a small enough size where the person reading is not reading a treatise on baptism. Yeah, but they're reading a, a theological explanation to help them take that very important next step. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. I think you you said that you've been at Grace uh, Community Church in Long Beach for coming up to ten years. Is that right? How did that opportunity come about, Seymour? What happened? Well, there's a little history there. 2012, I was like in my second year at the seminary. I'm a good friend, a good brother in Christ who was attending the seminary with me, uh, Jeremy Draper. He was asked to preach at this church while the pastor's on vacation. But there were two weeks in uh, that four-week period he would be doing uh, short-term missions. And so he reached out to me and says, hey, I want to give you the opportunity to preach at this church. I said, oh, I would love to do so. And so I went there and I preached uh, uh, twice uh, there for them. So I, I knew them in that in that sense. But that once I did that, it was like, okay, it was a great opportunity and, and I was done. 
Then the following year, the following summer of 2013, I signed up for the Grace Advance um, training. And Grace Advance is a ministry uh, from Grace Community Church in Sun Valley. And they, they train pastors and prepare them for church plants or church revitalizations. So in the course of that process, um, or maybe after that, uh, Grace Community Church of Long Beach reached out to the seminary, Ray Maringer, and they reached out to Grace Advance. They said, hey, we'd like someone to fill our pulpit. And then they reached out to Grace Advance. We'd like someone to actually uh, be a pastor because we think our church needs to be revitalized. They were down to like 12 people from 200 to 12, but they believed that there was some opportunity for them to grow there. So Ray Maringer emailed me and said, hey, there's an opportunity for you to preach at this church for like three months from September of 2013 to December. And that, during that time, they are searching for a pastor. So I gladly accepted. And uh, so in the midst of me being um, working full-time at the college, um, I was full-time at the college, still funeral coordinator. I was now a pulpit supply. I would preach in the morning and then uh, teach in the Sunday school class. So I did that in September and this church reached out to Grace Advance for pastor and they found out that I was actually connected to Grace Advance. And in the event, in the process of me preaching, they says, hey, you know, we really love your preaching. We, we want you to, to consider becoming our pastor. And so I, I, I spoke to Grace Advance about it. We prayed about it. And they were like, well, you probably should be an interim pastor because they were not sure that the church would last uh, because they were probably looking for a guy to just plug and go. Hey, let's just keep things going the way it, were, you know, the way it always has been. Um, they were not, Grace Advance was not convinced that they would really want reform there so they were like well yeah. take the interim title and let's see what happens so i did that in january i said i, I am here i'm going to serve as interim pastor I said to the congregation and some were happy but others had like mixed emotions like oh he's our interim so he's probably not going to be here for a long time and so they, they were not comforted by that so after thinking through it and reaching out to grace events and praying about it discussing it you know with with my wife valencia um I decided, you know, I'm just going to accept the position and, and be there teaching pastor and remove the interim label. And so I did that in January of uh, 2014, the end of January 2014. And so since then, I've been uh, the lead teaching pastor there. So when you arrived, was there still 12 people there, Seymour? There was about 12 people there. The average age, I believe, was 55 or 60. And so right. wow. my kids were the only youth there. They were the only young people there at that time. Yeah. yeah. So it, it there wasn't much there, but there was a pulpit. Yeah. And there were people, and I wanted to preach. So the three P's of ministry: you just need a pulpit, you need a people, and you just want you just have have the need to preach, and that that was it. There were yeah. some other potential opportunities over in the east because I wanted to go back east. But the Lord never gave us a sense of, of like like assurance that or peace that this was it. And uh, so we took the door that he gave us and, and not the door that we were trying to force open. So it was 12 so, people we started with, yeah. So over those 10 years, how have you seen the Lord at work for your ministry? Well, it, it has been sanctifying for me. I think uh, pastoral ministry, especially revitalization, it, it does reveal uh, lots of weaknesses. 
Um, so it, it, it was a maturing moment for me because I, I was never a pastor per se and, and uh, a pastor in kind of a, a reformed environment. And then you're there revitalizing a church. You're trying to encourage those who are there that the changes will be good, but then you can't make the changes even though they're good because they're not ready. It was uh, just a, a lot that we had to uh, think through. A lot of what we wanted to do that they said they would allow us to do, they didn't. So as soon as we accepted the, the pastoral position, there were a lot of, you know, um, stop signs at every intersection. Uh, so we really had to learn the, the art of patience and just preaching and loving God's people, showing them from the scripture that, and ultimately I think this was the issue. Uh, the question is, whose church is this? Does this belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it, is it a church of the people? Is this like some type of republic, some type of communist environment where... You know, the people are, uh, the, the dictators in Christ is, is, is at our feet. Was Christ a sovereign one over the church? Yeah. Um, you know, Scripture in Ephesians says that, that God has gifted, and this is so good, God has gifted to the church Christ as his head. I mean, it's, when I got to that text, I was so blown away that we have a head who's God in the flesh. Um, well, you go to churches and sometimes it's hard to tell who is Lord of the church uh, because the people are so accustomed to the, the songs being for them and about them and the preaching catering to them. And, or as, as one man falsely said, preaching without authority. So when I got there, the preaching was with authority. It was compelling sinners to believe because I didn't know if I had believers in who were. Yeah. Um, to, 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 uh, to an extent, it may have been an, an elder or two whose wives were not believers. And so uh, that was impressed upon my heart to make sure that, you know, come what may, I, I declare the gospel in my preaching. And I still do that. I, it's, it's still about the gospel of Christ, the glory of Christ. And yes, it, it offends the, uh, the, the false believer, the false convert, because it puts him in this awkward position to either have to say, I don't believe or I have to be quiet. So we got there, we, we just preached from Philippians, which is a great book about um, one of the themes is joy. It's also joy and suffering, the unity of the church, all those important themes are there. Uh, but, but it's rooted in Christ. I mean, Paul said so much about the Lord Jesus Christ that, that if you remove everything else but Christ, the letter is sufficient. Um, because the life was Christ, the love was in Christ, the gospel was Christ, his affections for Christ, his suffering for Christ, the future glory is Christ. I mean, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. And so um, you get to a church and you realize that there's a crisis of Christ. Um, when you start preaching about Christ and it becomes a crisis of conviction or condemnation or offense. Yeah. So uh, the first year we saw that, it was not until like the second year things started really trending in a, a healthy direction, but it was not without its battles because uh, sadly th there are in our churches a number of unbelievers who hold key positions. Mm -hmm. And um, because of that, because of their pretense to be saved, uh, they will use the authority and misuse it and uh, to, to the detriment of either the pastor or the church where there are several cases where church pastors left the church uh, because those who were in positions of leadership ran them away, not because they were not loving and speaking the truth. And I've heard that before. You know, the master's seminary grads have the reputation of going to churches and making changes as soon as they get there. Well, I, I'm here to tell you that that's not always true. 
um, I didn't come there to make changes. They asked me to make them. And I said, well, this is what I think we should do. They said, no, don't make those changes. No, what happens is uh, what we're trained to do as masters, grads, is to faithfully preach the word of God. And I can't speak for everyone, but when you do that, it doesn't matter what change you make. The change that Christ commands is the one that defends them the most. And so what they tend to do is they tend to find secondary things you're doing. Like, you know, he changed the carpeting. He, he changed the pulpit. Um, he, he changed the instruments. They're looking at secondary consequences as opposed to pri the primary cause. The primary cause of this, I would argue, is that when you preach the truth, people are finding ways to accuse you. And they could never really say, well, he preached the truth. That's why we don't want him there. Mm -hmm. They will find secondary consequences um, to try to fault the preacher. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Uh, Seymour, uh, another thing that you, you've got going on is you've got this great podcast for Pastor's Soapbox, but I haven't seen any new episodes for a while. How did this get started and what's happening with it? Yeah. Well, I was always interested in radio and recordings since I was maybe in my teens. I took some, you know, video and audio broadcasting when I was in high school. Uh, my dad actually had me DJ for him at an AM, AM radio station when I was like in my late 20s. And I was like, I really enjoy doing this. It's, And so I've always had that in the back of my mind. If the opportunity came up, I'll do it. Plus, I think it's good for pastors to have an outlet. I don't have a lot of hobbies. My life centers, centers around Christ. So there's certain topics that I may want to speak on in a more extensive way that I will not bring to the pulpit that I find beneficial for the people, but also for myself to express those things. And so that was a part of the motivation uh, behind doing it. Now, once I got to that first season, I was grateful, but it was like, okay, what's the next level? Uh, I am big on doing things well. Uh, I may not have a lot of money to do it, but I have the motivation to do it well. So the, the, the objective was, how, how do I fine tune this so it's, it's done in a level that reflects excellence using the resources I have. And so I reached an impasse, really. I still desire to do it, and I, I think I will. It's just that I reached an impasse because that next level type of process is not in my DNA. Um, I know what to look for. I just don't know how to find it. I don't okay. have the skill set to do production, pre-post-production. And, you know, uh, I, I like even having music or musical themes to go with it, like hymns. I'm a musician, so I wanted to lay some tracks on it and all those things. But but when I think about all of that, brother, and look at my Bible, I'm like, I'd rather learn Jesus Christ. It's not that I don't want to do those things. It's just I can do what I'm doing now with you. I can do that part. But it's the other aspects, the front and the back end of it, that I wanted. I want it to be done well. I don't want some kind of, you know, slop shop presentation. Here we are in the name of Jesus Christ and the chandeliers are falling down and, you know, right. I'm, I'm in and out. And my audio is clicking and or there's, you know, there's bacon grease in the background on the frying on the stove. That's not what I want uh, yeah. because I serve a God who is infinitely great in all that he does. I want to reflect it in some small measure in everything that I do. So I didn't want to go hasten to the second or the third season without having some um, assistance or help on the production side. Okay, very good. So is that you officially putting it out there that if there's a producer listening who's got some time on their hands, they can contact you, right? <laughs> that sounds really good.
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, brilliant. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. You, you've got some really good experience under your belt in raising a Christian family. What advice would you have for any younger Christians that are just starting out having a family of their own? Yeah, it's it's important, I think, to to pray for your children uh, before, pray for the marriage before, um, that God will prepare you to be a godly spouse, prepare for the battles ahead, because there are challenges uh, with, with raising children and teaching them the fear and instruction of the Lord. And then I would say consistency in two areas. Uh, first of all, consistency in your life. And make sure that your life models godliness. And in the modeling of godliness, there's the necessary confession of sin. Uh, one of the worst things that you can do to your kids uh, is to excuse your sin because you did it against God and against them. It's important for them to see that because then you can declare why your hope is not in your deeds, but your hopes in the merits of Christ for you, because that's what they need. So when, oh, yeah. when they're facing those times of despair in their life or, you know, hardship and their sins are overwhelming, they, 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 they don't need excuses. Uh, they need a justifier. And that justifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what you cling to when your sins overwhelm you. You're no longer overwhelmed by your sins, but you're overwhelmed by the grace of God. Um, you're not overcome by your sins, but you're, you're overwhelmed by uh, uh, the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there has to be consistency in the, the practice of, of godliness, not only in pursuing holy living, but also confessing sin. But also consistency in, in um, whether you call it devotional time or family worship times. Um, whether it's uh, uh, two days a week, three days a week, or every day. We started out uh, five days a week with our kids, and then they, they, life and circumstances uh, altered, so it was what, three days a week. And uh, now we try to just connect as much as possible with them on an individual level. Um, but just just be consistent and let them know that you're consistent. Let them know that you, you're de desiring uh, their growth spiritually. You want them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, those two areas of consistency are very important. There are a number of good resources out there. Um, so we don't lack for resources. Um, but I, I do would say that with the consistency, we, we need to make sure that our re reliance or our dependency is not on the resources, but God himself, the source of the resource. That we are pointing our children to the Lord Jesus Christ. That our conversation is, is not to have morally inclined children, although they're subjected to the laws they're tutored that leads them to Christ without question. You, you, you use the law to restrain their sinful habits, uh, but that is not the end goal. The end goal is to bring the gospel to the conversation so that they may know that there's a redeemer and they need that yeah. redeemer. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So helpful. So good. Thank you. Um, as you've been describing, I know that you're a very busy man and you, you so often give out, don't you, in your role? What does a typical day look like for you? And being so busy, how do you safeguard your own time with the Lord? Well, I safeguard it by making sure that's the first thing I do in the morning. And so I, I'm usually up around five o'clock. Um, and I practice the habit of getting up at five without an alarm. So it's just it's just automatic. And the only time... You know, I'm sanctified in it is when time the time changes. That time change is, is a little mini thorn in my flesh. Um, but it's usually five o'clock for me, and I, I just set aside two, three hours 
three and a half hours, sometimes in the morning to make sure I'm in the word and prayer. So that breath of time is, is just for me and, and God to worship him, to give him thanks, um, to express my gratitude for the gospel, for his goodness, for his faithfulness, um, to petition for needs, to intercede for others, reading of the scripture. So the morning is, is really, it, it belongs exclusively to the Lord. And so that helps um, prevent any issues in the day. Uh, I, I can maybe delay other things and move other things around, but I, I do my best not to move that around. Yeah. Yeah. And what does a typical day look like for you, Seymour? Well, a typical day for me, uh, Mondays are normally my off days, um, just to rest with the family, clean the house. Um, you know, where we live requires a lot of mopping. So I, my wife doesn't mop. She doesn't vacuum. She doesn't get gas. I mean, she doesn't do all that hard work. That's, that's a man's job. So I try to take care of that stuff and, you know, whatever family things even done, budgeting, all those things that do Monday, she needs help with some of the groceries. We'll do that. Sometimes we'll take a walk and just you know, talk about what the Lord is doing, encourage each other. So Monday is just, uh, just for me to, to refresh myself and family. Tuesday, I slowly ramp up into it. And um, as I say this, I remember what Dr. Martin, Lord, David Martin Lord Jones, Jones said. He says, know thyself, right? You, you have to know what works well for you. Because when I first started, I was like Monday to Monday. If there was an eighth day, I'll take the eighth day. And I was just constantly going. I would do everything. Family was not neglected, but I would do ministry Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But it was wrecking my nerves. I just, I just was not built for that type of rigor. And so I've actually had to trim back and, and adjust certain things. So Tuesday, I slowly ramp up into it because I, I'm more effective on the Lord's Day if I pace myself into it. But if I don't, I'm already mentally exhausted on, on the Lord's Day, and I, I don't have the energy. And with me, I, I, I preach with all of my, my being. I need every faculty to, to move. If I'm exhausted, nothing moves, not even my eyelids. So I try to make sure that I ramp up into the Lord's Day. Um, so Tuesday, I slowly transition, uh, maybe the same devotional time, emails. I, I go to the gym on Tuesdays, get a little workout in, um, and then I come back slowly ramming into the emails, um, you know, whatever plans need to be made. If I need to, you know, look over the sermon um, for Sunday, if I have time, I'll, I'll do that also. And then Wednesday is just when, you know, the, the heavy lifting begins of, of sermon preparation, um, working through that. And then Thursday, the same thing. Friday, what I've been doing lately is I've been, um, I've been ending my studies early on Friday so I can spend most of the time reading. Um, um, some of the more theologically deep books on Fridays. I do reading throughout the week, but Friday I set aside a little bit more time for extensive reading. And then Saturday, still preparation. I don't take that day off. I do counseling every other Saturday. And so I have a block of time that I do counseling discipleship on those Saturdays. Um, and then when I'm home, just try to kind of decompress a little bit, rest, get back into my studies until the evening. And then the glorious Lord's Day, Tell the people the good things the Lord has taught me and showed me for their good and his glory. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. When you look at where we are as a church in 2023 in a Western world, what excites you and what do you think are the biggest concerns? What excites me is that the Lord is pruning his church. And he said he will. Christ said it in, in John 15, um, that the Father prunes 
And as he's pruning, there's some who are not big fruit, and then they're, they're cast and thrown into the fire. So there's a, a tremendous pruning effect. And we won't see the, the full ramifications of it now. But we should give thanks uh, when God prunes the church because it allows you to get a glimpse of uh, the, the true elect in the church. I think that's been good to see. I think also there's been another resurgence, and it's been going on for quite some time, where you have a younger generation of people who just want to be taught the Word of God. I know there are polls, and you know, look at the Barna polls, and they say, well, you know, kids are not interested, young people are interested in church for these reasons. The fundamental reason why young people are not interested is that they're dead in their sin, number one. The other issue is that we're not preaching the gospel to bring them to a place of awakening. Um, I'm reading a, a biography on in, in, uh, Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon, and, and it's been really helpful. It was written by Arnold uh, Dallimore. And I know I think that's one of the questions you may have, but uh, what I found so so encouraging and interesting in that book is, is just the event, evangelistic focus that Spurgeon had. And yet people from all ages, uh, they were converted, but those were some really dark times in London. Right, yeah. Um, some bleak times in London. And we, we're facing the same thing today. Well, what brings about the change? It is the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, our young people don't need less of Christ. They need more of Christ and preaching Christ crucified. So I am encouraged as I see young people coming, listen to the preaching, like, we, we want more of this. We want more of the discipleship. We, we just want to know what, what, what is God saying? Because everyone else has a voice. But it is his word that stands. We want that. So that is encouraging to see as uh, we look at that. I think what is a, a sad reality, though, and I, I, I can name names. I don't feel uncomfortable naming names, but I'm just going to give you a, a broader analysis of what is disturbing is the trend of evangelicals feeling that they have to attach their name to a certain movement or personality. Um, during the, the 2016 election, it was evangelicals for Trump. Um, and then it was, um, in 2020, it was evangelicals. Uh, they would say the progressive evangelicals, which is one thing, what is a progressive evangelical and evangelical? It's like, it's just dumbing down to the truth when we actually have to, um, to add an addendum to our title. I'm not a part-time Christian. I'm not a progressive Christian. I, I am either a follower of Christ or I'm not. But anyway, I transgress or I digress. Um, the, the point that I'm raising is that the attachment to these uh, parties, uh, it, it, it builds a sense of confusion uh, because you have false teachers and, and heretics to, to the deepest ends of the earth like Paula White. Um, emerging with other men who are more of a, we would say, a, more of a theologically conservative conviction, at least we thought, and they're seeing they're together praying for yeah. Donald Trump. Okay, well, yeah. well, whoever's leading the prayer, that's the God who's hearing. Right. And as far as I see it, Paula Weiss, God is not the same God of the Bible. Right. But she's leading the prayer, and the other men are standing around in agreement with her leading the prayer. First of all, she's out of her position. She's a false teacher. She shouldn't be a preacher or a pastor. And she's all of those things. She's, she has multiple divorces, you know, serious issues of unfaithfulness and adultery. 
you have this perpetually sinful woman doing this. It's just a modern-day Jezebel uh, acting out in this way. And here we are practicing polytheism um, at the expense of saving America. Uh, it's, a, it's a damning activity. And so when when uh, the progressives did that, the progressive evangelicals, and I say that for the sake of argument, I think it's an oxymoronic phrase. But anyway, when they did that in 2020, it was just a follow-up of what happened in 2016. But it is a gross misrepresentation of our sovereign Savior who himself rules all of creation. We don't need a man in office to say our Savior is king. Now, we, we do want to encourage the congregations that we preach to as they vote to vote biblically and make sure that their conscience is being informed by the word of God and not by social activism or social promises. But at the end of the day, that's just our duty that we should do as Christians. Um, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the Lord and in, in a future restored new creation within the new heavens and new earth. So I think that is one of the disturbing uh, trends. And um, I, I am an advocate of just, just letting Christ be Christ, letting the name Christian be Christian. I don't need anything after or before it. It stands alone because I identify with one person and not a person in a movement. I identify with my King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So good. So good. Something else that's causing quite a stir at the moment is Christian nationalism. What is that and why has this become such a hot topic? Yeah, it seems to be kind of a coined phrase um, to reflect, uh, I guess, a group of people's position and their belief as far as a nation is concerned, uh, being under the authority of, of, of Christian principles and Christian doctrine. Now, beyond that, it gets really fuzzy. Um, the, 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 the meaning and, and the implications behind it is somewhat elusive. Uh, like critical race theory or social justice, it depends on who you ask what it means. I think because it's so murky um, and, and, and it is, I think, rooted in more of a, a political agenda. And once again, I'm, I'm not trying to say everyone has that desire because there, there's certain qualities about Christian nationalism that I can agree with. But my bigger problem is that there's a Christian in front of it, and Christian needs a word to help fill it out, to help give it substance. And I think the substance of Christianity is lost when we have to add something to it. It's because we're Christians, right? Uh, we, we believe that, that Christ rules. And so because Christ rules, we should call our leaders to account, right? They, they, they should rule in righteousness. We should call them out when they do not. We should call them to repent. Uh, Biden needs to repent. Biden is a sinner. Biden is depraved. His wife, Jill, she's depraved as a guest. Obama, depraved, um, wicked, their heart, they need transformation. Michelle Obama, we should pray for their salvation. And I think the same is true of Donald Trump. Wherever you are, you can be in England and other parts of the world. Uh, we've seen what has happened recently, whether it be England, Australia, uh, New Zealand. Um, our leaders, China, Russia, Ukraine, our leaders are spiritually decimated because they've been turned over by God. Um, and when I think about the influence that the church has had, we've never had to add an addendum to our title because we, we, we had prominence because of our reputation in Christ or even as in the old, in old covenant context. For example, you have in Isaiah, you have his interaction with Hezekiah, that we always had an audience with the king when we stood out, when we were distinct. Uh, the same is true. Well, John paid the price, but he had an audience with Herod. They recognize 
God's people. The same is true in Acts that even though they were ignorant and unlearned men, they recognized that they were with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Whenever you modify Christ, you have reduced him to something lesser than the substance of who he is. And so the problem with Christian nationalism, it is a bit elusive. It does have some Christian principles behind it, but it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, because it's like we're, we're trying to, uh, as almost as it seems, to convert America, uh, to, to say that America is a Christian nation. It never has been and it never will be. Um, the, only, the only nation that, that was close to being theocratic uh, was, was, was Israel. Uh, every other nation is far from that. And that will, not only, that will only happen uh, in the age to come. So our identity with our nation is important, but it must not be intertwined with, with Christianity. Christianity should influence it, but Christianity must not marry it. Uh, we, we see an illustration of that, although some good things happen. Um, I read an article by someone who was an advocate of Christian nationalism, and um, he went back to, I think, the third or fourth century. Um, the, the problem with that era, that even though great things did happen under the leaders who were there, um, they were in some instances, not all of those leaders truly were saved. And uh, they made it out to, 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 to give the impression that those leaders at that time who called for Christian legislation were saved, but a number of them were actually pluralist or syncretist. Mm. They wanted to a peaceful nation. So in order to get the peaceful nation, they, they, they worked out certain deals with holidays and, and, and events of the year and married them with Christianity. And he, he used that history to say that Christian nationalism actually worked over half in the fourth century. And I would say, well, that was good in some ways and disastrous in others because it led a number of people to think that they were and they were not. Uh, it, it, Christianity was enforced as a law as opposed to a person to believe it was a law to keep. Um, that is the antithesis of the gospel. Well, this person who wrote that, that blog commended that, that era because it, it produced a sense of, of responsibility in society, which once again, we, we would applaud that. But we would rather have a sense of responsibility in society without enforcing Christianity because Christianity cannot be enforced. Um, it, it, it is not a law to be enforced. It is a Christ to know and to believe in. Uh, it is a spiritual activity. It's a spiritual work. We do believe that the influence of, of Christianity should have its impact in community, but the impact in community is by citizens in the community who will go gospelize and declare Christ or will go to the community meetings and advocate for righteousness. I went to a meeting, my wife and I, about two weeks ago. And uh, someone posted it on our door, you want to meet with the police and talk to them. And I did. And we went and I stood up and I spoke. And I, and I gave them a brief testimony of God's mercy to me as a sinner and that I'm only here by the grace of God. Yeah. And then I call them all into account as citizens. Now, as a believer, I have the right to do that. And I did not tell any of them at all um, that you're under the authority of, of, of Christianity. I told them that they're on the authority of God's law because they're not saved yet. They're accountable to the law of God. It is in that moment of desperation that we give them the gospel so that they may believe. I think Christian nationalism could easily circumvent um, the law's necessity and make the gospel the law, as opposed to the law standing alone to condemn the sinner and then bringing Christ, the righteous one, as their savior. Very good. Very good. I missed the pastor soapbox, Seymour. I'm hearing, I'm hearing an episode right there, right? <laughs> That's got to come back. <laughs> Just in case we have anyone listening to you talk about how Jesus impacted your life, that they don't yet know him for themselves, what would you want to say to them? 
we were created to know God. Uh, we were created to worship God. That is why we adore, we worship, we idolize so many things. As I consider that question, I'm also reflecting on the massive escalation of self-murders, of what the world calls suicide. And it is a result of this void, this emptiness that is a result of spiritual death, separation from God, estrangement from the giver of life, the source of goodness, the wellspring of love, the fountain of goodness. And because of that separation, you'll go from one day, one event, one meeting, one promotion um, to another. And at the end of all of your successes, you find a solemn did in Ecclesiastes. This is nothing but futility, emptiness. Uh, sin, the adversary sells a product, but it's laced with lies and untruth that you have to keep yourself busy and you keep yourself happy by going to these happy hours on Fridays or meeting with your friends. And all the while, you know, there, there must be something more to life than this. There must be something more to life than I'm approaching my senior year in high school. I'm going to graduate. I'm my senior year in college, university, I'm about to graduate. I'm going to become a doctor in three or four months. And all of my successes, if I look back at all of these things, I recognize that I'm still empty. This, uh, these, these goals, they did not fill the void because you're separated from God. You're alienated from God. You're dead in your sin. You cannot fill that void with material things. The hope that we offer to all is the Lord Jesus Christ. We were created by God to know him, to worship him, to adore him. But because of sin, sin separated us from this desire, this objective, which is the highest objective. And now we're pursuing passing sinful pleasures. When you think about Romans chapter 1, and it says, because of our rejection of God's truth as he revealed himself in creation, uh, we are no longer wise. So our decisions are not wise. And we look at look what's happening in our society today with, with this, they will call a sexual revolution. It's a sexual degeneration. Uh, what is happening here is, is a primary example of what Romans 1 says. Yeah. It's a yeah. consequence of despising the goodness, the glory of God, and acknowledge him, acknowledging him for who he is. Well, what, what is the cure? What is the solution? That is, the, that is where... Paul boldly proclaimed, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel declares that God came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son came to this earth, took on human flesh, became the God-man, truly God, truly man. His life on this earth was to fulfill the righteous law of God. It was not just an example. That's once again a consequence of him being upright. But his upright living was for us. It was a righteous life that would be credited to us. And then his sacrifice on the cross is what we call the great exchange. It replaces the tragic exchange in Romans chapter 1. 
the tragic exchange in Romans chapter one is that we exchange the glory of God for the glory of, of created things, including sexual immorality. But the gospel in the great exchange is this, that when you turn from your sin and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God declares you this unjust, ungodly, unworthy sinner righteous. Just to stop there. Because he's so good. He satisfies his justice because he's just and righteous, and he must because this is part of his infinitely good character. But then he's merciful. He robes you with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so for eternity, you're covered. You're robed, declared righteous, robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he converts you, calls you his own son and daughter. He saves you. And in salvation, as you grow in Christ's likeness and as you grow to know your God, you begin to recognize why you were created. But we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. He created us for the purpose of good works in Christ, not good works apart from Christ. But because of Christ, our union with Christ, we do good works. And then life makes more sense because it's eternal. It's no longer temporal. You're not living for today. You're not living for thrills, for happiness that are fleeting. Let me not include the issue that we have in our society about drug overdoses. We are in a world of, of futility, of emptiness, of bankruptcy, because men and women, young and old, are spiritually dead. The life in Christ transforms you to where your affections for Christ, as they grow, the songwriter says, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We say, well, what must I do? Well, the scripture makes it plain and clear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Jesus is Lord, master, ruler, but there's something else, not only the Lordship of Christ is master, but also his person, that he was truly God, truly man. You have the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, two natures in one person. Believe in Christ, but also confess with your mouth that God raised him so that you may be declared righteous or justified. You'll be saved. That is the call. We, we appeal to you to be reconciled to God. By turning away from your sin, turning away from all hope in yourself, your self-righteousness, your efforts, your deeds, your goals. You say, well, I'm not happy now, but I know once I get this job, I'll be happy. I know a lot of unhappy people with good jobs. Right. Yeah. They're unhappy athletes with a lot of money. When athletes said, I wish someone told me one thing, and it is this, that when I get to the highest point of my career, I'll still be unhappy. Mm-hmm. No one is ever truly satisfied. You may have a moment of happiness, which is happenstance, so that is circumstantial, it's temporary. But no one has lasting joy with material things. True joy comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that as you're listening to this, that God will pierce your conscience, impact your will, pour out his spirit of life into you regenerate you, give you life so that you may say, this is the moment for me to turn to the Lord Jesus. I want to be saved. What must I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.
Yeah. Well, we could so easily just finish the show there, but I do want to hear your answers to the free free bar signature questions. So we're going to take a break right here and we'll be back in a few moments. So, Seymour, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very important questions. I hope you're ready. Let's go. Question one. What kind of music do you listen to? I listen to a, I've been listening to a lot of Sovereign Grace because my grandson forces me to listen to them. I love it, though. I love Sovereign Grace music. But he, he says, uh, GP, GP, that's because he says, GP, Saw Grace, Saw Grace. He can't say Sovereign. He says, Saw Grace, Saw Grace. So I, I love the new hymns. I love the old hymns. I love the Gettys. Um, I'm also, I, I'm also still in kind of. I, I like certain forms of jazz music, um, just instrumental. I like to listen to the musicians kind of just work and, and improvise. So I, I studied jazz for a little bit. So I, I still uh, enjoy it to some degree. Um, I do have a, a bit of a, a little bit of respect still for like gospel musicians. I just wish yeah. that their lyrics actually match what they say they believe. Um, but there's a sense of musicianship that I think is always good. I listen to it very rarely, um, but it would be nice if their theology matched the talent. That would be neat. Yeah, yeah. Next signature bar question. What book or books are you currently reading? I just told you about the book from um, Arnold A. Dollymore. And yeah, there are many uh, uh, Spurgeon books. I, I read one. Um, from Ian Murray uh, recently, The Forgotten Spurgeon. This biography has been so, so enriching for me, brother. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed reading through it. I'm, I'm probably at the halfway point. Uh, it's one of those soul-piercing, kind of like stirring, pastoral stirring ones. It it convicts you, but when you get up, it's like, let's get to work. We have a great master that we serve. So yeah. that's been really good. I started reading Religious Affections too uh, recently, so I'm working through that one with Jonathan Edwards, and that's been yeah. once more. So you're talking about Jonathan Edwards too, and um, uh, Jonathan John Owens's book on the Christian life. What well, John Owens on the Christian life is a title. This one's by Matthew Barrett and Michael Haken. I've been going through that also, and uh, that's been that's been really encouraging. So those are the three books that I, I'm reading regularly. And then from time to time, as I have time, just for my pastoral encouragement, I'll read um, The Christian Ministry. Um, and the author slipped my mind. He's a very famous one, or back in back in the years bygone. If I remember his name, I'll, I'll let you know. But I've been reading The Christian Ministry um, just periodically just to refresh my mind and administering the importance of it. Yeah, well, you're reading some good stuff there. So, Daddy Moore, Daddy Moore's the author of the uh, double volume Whitfield uh, bi- biographies. Right? Have you read those before? I did not read the the double volume on Whitfield. Oh. No, I, but I do know that he did it. Have you? Yes, so good, mate. Pull it on your Is list, it? Seymour. Yeah, I must, brother. <laughs> I must do so. So it's the it's the Christian ministry of the Charles Bridges one. Oh, okay, right, yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah, yeah that's right, yes. yeah, very good, yeah, thank you, I'm, thank I'll you, note great that, stuff. I'll note that book by Dolly Moore, man, I'll, I'll check that out, I love his, Dolly Moore's writing is ex- extremely um, smooth, I like it too, and yeah. so he's been helpful kind of working through some of the history, but just to give you an idea, he's he was like a generation removed from Spurgeon, uh, his mother used to attend a Metropolitan Tabernacle um, with her dad, 
years ago. So he has a, a very close history uh, with uh, Spurgeon's ministry. Very good. Well, I'll tell you what, Seymour, if Banner of Truth have got it in stock, I'll buy it for you and I'll get it sent to you. Uh, the Daddy Moore volume. <laughs> so look out for it. I'll let you know if it's in stock. Hey, sounds good, brother. Last signature bar question. What podcasts or sermons do you listen to, if any? Yeah. The funny thing about podcasts is like I podcast, but I don't listen to them that much. Um, it's a weird, it's like, well, you have to listen to them to learn. And it's, I agree with all of those things. Um, but I, I have really grown fond of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones's uh, preaching. And so I listen to that quite a bit. And then, then depending on the series of preaching that I go through, I listen to an Alistair Begg, Dr. MacArthur, um, R.C. Sproul, um, David Montgomery Boyce. So I listen to a lot of those classic kind of reformed preachers um, who are sound uh, exegetically in their preaching. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Really good stuff. Well, Seymour, thank you so much for your time. I've, as always, loved speaking to you. So encouraging. But before we let you go, take a moment, let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Yes, sir. Well, it's easy to follow me by just uh, tuning in or uh, watching uh, the sermons on YouTube, Grace Community Church of Long Beach. We also have a, an app that you can pull up, typing GCCLB. The app is our sermons are also on there. Our sermon notes, we post our sermon notes also on the church's app so that uh, those who are listening can follow along in the congregation also. So those are the main, I think, uh, areas. Uh, as, far as, so, as far as social media, I think my Twitter name is Pastor Seymour, right? So yeah, that, that shows you just how poor I am with my social media. Um, I will tell you, I post sometimes, but my wife does a much better job of of keeping (laughs) my Twitter (laughs) account uh, current. Um, But yeah, it's Pastor Seymour on on, uh, the Twitter, Twitter handle. Well, I'll make sure that I find all of those links um, and I'll, I'll check the handle on Twitter and Instagram and I'll make sure that yeah, they're brother, all posted. Yeah. Help me out, brother. Thank you. Help, help out a brother. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, will do. Seymour, thank you so much for your time, brother. Really appreciate it. Hi, brother. I'm grateful. Thanks again for having me on. And to the bar listeners, thank you again for tuning in and make sure that you hit that subscribe button so that you can get the show every single Tuesday. And just like today, we have some top, top guests coming up that you do not want to miss out on. And remember to check out the bar podcast website where you can listen to Dwayne's huge archive of interviews, which will keep you nice and busy until next time to laugh for now.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.